This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Dave Steed, pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, card number 775. Before we get to Dave, we do have follow-up from previous episodes. A couple about Phil Bradley. Before even listening to the podcast, listener at the Snorting Bull on Twitter said he was excited to listen to this episode and asked if we brought up a certain Buck Martinez play. And this is something that escaped our purview here. Phil Bradley was involved in a play at the plate in 1985, July 9th, 1985, and this is also prescient because Buck Martinez was a teammate of Dave Steeb on those Toronto Blue Jays. In this play, the Mariners have a man on second, Phil Bradley, football great, legend of the Missouri gridiron, and designated hitter Storman Gorman Thomas is at the plate. Thomas hits a single to right field. Jesse Barfield is in right field. He's got a gun for an arm. He goes to throw out Bradley, who's got speed, running from second to try to score on a single. But Bradley sees Buck Martinez standing in front of the plate, remembers his days on the Missouri gridiron, tries to go through Buck Martinez. In the collision, Martinez snaps his ankle, breaks his leg, is on the ground, gets the out, and realizes that Thomas, who had just hit the single, is running for third. So from his butt, Tries to throw Gorman Thomas out at third. Ball goes into left field. Martinez still laying on the ground. Gorman Thomas is running toward home. Sees the catcher on the ground. Tries to kind of tiptoe around him. Meanwhile, the left fielder has thrown the ball to Martinez with a broken leg on the ground. Tags Gorman Thomas for the second out. And then has to be stretchered off the field because he can't walk. Because he just broke his leg. Broken leg. Double play. One of the most remarkable feats on a baseball field. Also an amazing throw from left field to actually make it what looks like between the legs of the runner and get to the catcher who cannot move because he's on the ground. Yeah, an incredible play. And we'll put the uh, link to the video from YouTube in the show notes. But it's definitely worth watching if you've never seen it. The second bit of follow-up from the Phil Bradley episode is... I have to give a mea culpa here, David. I inaccurately quoted AP style. And I took the Mariners to task for the fact that their uniforms had had M apostrophe S all over their uniform, all over their merch, which is just, I felt looked really weird. I feel like the apostrophe looked strange. And a friend of the pod, Mike, reached out to you with a a tweet from the AP style book on Twitter that had an answer to this complaint, and that is in AP style that an apostrophe is used for a plural of a single letter, like P's and Q's, and the Oakland A's, for example. Now, I believe that. I mean, I think the Oakland A's are often referred to as the A's instead of athletics, but the Mariners aren't typically known as the M's, so I still have a bit of a beef with the Mariners choosing this as their logo when they could have just had M or they could have just had S, but to have M apostrophe S, bizarre marketing, if it is technically correct. Or they could have just had the upside down pitchfork. Mm. They could have kept that. 
it looks sort of like an M. They don't have to put an apostrophe S. Pitchforks. No, there's no possessive needed. There's no plurals needed. You just put a put a weapon on there. I mean, I think that's a lot better as a logo uh, and as a design. And for hunting fish. It's better for hunting fish. Mm, much, much more effective at hunting fish than using an apostrophe or any weapon or tool that looks like an apostrophe. So except, except perhaps a fishing hook. Maybe that's what they were going for all along, David. Regardless, using the trident, I feel like a much better thing for a mariner to do. Thank you, Mike. So for any corrections, suggestions, statements of appreciation, gripes, or complaints, you can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. But now let's go to today's card. And why are we talking about Dave Steve today? We haven't talked about a Blue Jay in a while. I feel like we were front-loaded with good Blue Jays with Garth and the Terminator. And Diane has been a listener for a while. She's Canadian, and she suggested a couple months back, got to do my all-time favorite Jay, Steve. Dave Steve was a great pitcher in the 1980s. There is an entire Dorktown documentary about Dave Steve. If you have three hours of your life to dedicate to Dave Steve, John Boys and Alex Rubenstein have done a fantastic job. We are not going to go a full three hours here. (laughs) We cannot live up to that expectations. We don't have the graphics capacity here, but we're going to try to fit this into 30 to 40 minutes to talk about a really interesting career, a guy who's underappreciated, except by Blue Jays fans and 80s baseball fans, and apparently the guys at Dorktown. There is a, a great Sabre bio by Joe Cox, and Steve is a Blue Jays legend. He's one of the best pitchers of the 80s, multiple near no-nos, and he doesn't get nearly the respect that he deserves. So we'll maybe go into whether or not Dave Steve belongs in the Hall of Fame later on as well. Fantastic. I also love that in Diane's request, she spelled favorite with a U. So we are ready to go to visit Canada once again. Let's go to the front of card 775, and we have Dave Steve on the mound getting ready to pitch. He's looking in at the catcher. He's got a great thick mustache. It's a sunny day in what looks like probably spring training. You can also pick out behind him the second baseman who looks like he has an enormous hat and is not maybe in the ready position. He looks like he's kind of, although you can't really make out his face, he kind of looks like he's not paying much attention. He's very blurry. That's to protect his identity. (laughs) so that his boss doesn't see that he was not paying attention yeah that's a weird looking hat i didn't even notice that i was more looking at the blue jays logo which i i do love the blue jays logo i don't think i realized the tiny maple leaf that's thrown on there when i was a kid as an adult i've come to appreciate the blue jays logo i do like the the color block hat with the white block in the front the blue jay really does pop off of there steve has a little bit of a mullet going on here I like it. I like the little feathered hair in front of the ear. Very yeah. good look. Very good look. Yeah, the the maple leaf on the Blue Jay kind of looks like the Blue Jay is wearing an earring. I guess that's where a bird's ear goes. I don't know. Don't. I'm not an expert on birds. Do you have a bird? But, another bird podcast? I I don't. Birds don't have ears. That's science. Birds don't have ears. No, oh, okay. They don't, they don't have ears. We will never learn if birds have ears because they can't listen to this podcast. So they don't have ears. <laughs> I don't think we have a single bird listener. That is correct. That's correct. I've checked the stats. You know, we're going to get a note that 
that somebody's it, like me and my parrot listen to this podcast and my parrot it, loves it they repeat jumbotron if you have a bird who listens to this podcast please send a picture to us via email at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com for birds. Some of that's usable. Now let's go to the back of 775. We have Dave Steeb, pitcher, height 6'1", 195, right-handed thrower, right-handed batter, drafted by the Blue Jays in the fifth round of 1978. Born July 22nd, 1957 in Santa Ana, California, with a home in Palm Harbor, Florida. I was going to talk about the Santa Ana winds, but then realized that Dave Steve grew up in San Jose. So I don't have any Santa Ana material here, but San Jose. You don't have any Santa Ana material except for Steely Dan lyrics? Here come those Santa Ana winds again. Is that named after General Santa Ana, whose leg uh... is on display at the Illinois History Museum? Multiple times I've searched for Santa Ana's leg. <laughs> gets you on a list. When your computer starts auto-filling Santa Ana's leg in the search bar. It's like a celebrity search. (laughs) Dave Steve grew up in San Jose. San Jose was a growing city at the time, not the metropolis that it is today. Between 1950 and 60, it doubled in size from 95,000 to 200,000. Now well over a million people, the 10th largest city in America. David, that's a a shocking stat to me. The Bay Area is 13th overall in metropolitan statistical areas in the United States, but that San Jose would be much larger than San Francisco or Oakland in population and throughout kind of the Bay Area and Silicon Valley that San Jose is the largest one depends much more on just the city limits and how the city limits got drawn and how they incorporate other metropolitan towns, villages, and things like that. You can find more about this on my other podcast called Agglomeration Information. Dave Steve's dad was named Pete. He was a general contractor. His mom was Pat. She was a delivery woman for the San Jose Mercury, the newspaper. And Dave Steve grew up playing sports, playing baseball, but mostly outfield for Oak Grove High. Other notable names associated there, Mike Holmgren, who once taught and coached there and went on to coach the Packers and later the Seahawks. Producer Fred Reck is a graduate. Fred Reck was once Exhibit's roommate. He worked on Dr. Dre's The Chronic 2001 and won a Grammy for his work on, on Anderson Pock's Ventura. At Oak Grove High, Dave Steve played outfield. His parents hadn't allowed him or his older brother, Steve. Steve Steve is really difficult to say, to mm. pitch. Mm. So he, they didn't allow either son to pitch in uh, youth baseball. Mrs. Steve particularly was concerned about this. She said she didn't want them to ruin their arms. Good looking out for mom there, we'll, as we'll get to later on down the road. Steve would go on to play catcher in the minor leagues, and Dave had a good arm in the outfield, and his coach would often ask him, do you want to try pitching? And he always refused. On top of having mom's orders that he keep playing the outfield, Steve didn't want to interfere with his hitting, and he thought that pitching would take some of his concentration away. He was a really good outfielder. He made the Mercury News All-Central Coast team as an outfielder in 1975, and he went to San Jose Community College. During his first year there, again, is asked to pitch, and he says, no thank you. In his second year at San Jose, he still played outfield, and there's a young freshman pitcher named Dave Rigetti. 
Rigetti ends up getting drafted after that season and begins playing in the Texas Ranger organization. And after that second season, Dave decides to follow his brother to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And that's the alma mater of former guest and father-in-law of the pod, Bill, as well as Jim Belushi, rapper Open Mike Eagle, Bob Odenkirk, and baseball player Steve Finley and Dwayne Kuyper. And we'll come across some more SIU Salukis later on. So his brother Steve is already there playing catcher. Dave joins, continues to play outfield, and he was really good. He hit 394, 12 home runs, 48 RBIs for the Salukis, and he was named to the Sporting News All-American team as an outfielder. This SIU team had some injuries, and Steve was a team player. He sometimes threw batting practice, and he had made one pitching appearance. So those injuries pushed him into trying new things, trying out pitching, even though his mom had had advised against it. And according to head coach Richard Itchy Jones, and Itchy Jones went on to be a longtime head coach of the U of I baseball team, as well as having a successful run at Southern Illinois. Itchy said, after working with him for a day or two, Dave already had a better breaking ball than any of our starters, and he had great velocity. We didn't find out he could pitch until April 1st. Shows how smart we were. So Steve had a live arm throwing in the 90s and throwing a slider. At this point, he's only able to throw two pitches because he had never really pitched before. But his play in the outfield drew sporting news interest, but it also drew some scouting interest. A couple Blue Jays scouts, Bobby Maddock and Al LaMacchia, show up at a game against Eastern Illinois University, Kevin Seitzer and Tim Piznarski's alma mater. And it just so happened that that day, Maddock and LaMacchia were there to see a doubleheader. So in the first game, they watched Dave Steve at the plate, and they didn't like him. They thought, this guy doesn't have a major league swing. He's not good enough. They were just going to head out. In game two, SIU runs out of pitchers. Steve, being a good team player, came in for mop-up duty. The quotes from the scouts were, Steve knocked our eyeballs out, (laughs) said Maddock. He was absolutely overpowering. We hadn't liked him as a hitter but he sure as hell opened our eyes when he started pitching. We decided to draft him. After the game, the scouts come up to him and say, what do you think? Would you contemplate pitching? And Steve said, I'm an outfielder, but they must have convinced him because if you look at the back of the card, that this way to the clubhouse is that Dave signed as a fifth round draft selection with the Blue Jays July 16th, 1978 by Wayne Morgan and Pat Gillick, and he became a pitcher. These are some names that we know. Wayne Morgan pitched in the Astros system and then signed Terry Swimming Pool. Pat Gillick was also a minor league pitcher, then moved into scouting for the Astros and Yankees, was offered a job with the expansion Blue Jays. 1978 was his first year as GM. So he's the GM and signs Dave Steeb. He serves in that role all the way through to 1994, winning five division titles, two World Series rings, Goes on to be GM for Baltimore, Seattle, and the Phillies, retiring after the Phillies win the 2008 World Series title. Matt, as the card says, Steve was picked in the fifth round. Not many scouts had seen him pitch. He only pitched 17 innings at SIU. His coach said that the scouts didn't know what days he would pitch, so nobody even knew to look for him as a pitcher. They would just maybe scout him as an outfielder. Maybe he could end up being a late-round selection as an outfielder, but nobody other than the Blue Jays thought that this was a pitching option. Steve was still holding on to his outfield dreams 
He said, while we were negotiating, they asked if I would pitch. I said, I didn't know. They said, let's put it this way. The quickest way to make it would be pitching. So Steve said, okay. And he heads to the minors at Dunedin, Florida. He was still mostly an outfielder, playing 35 games and hitting 192. On the mound, however, he started four games and had a 2.08 ERA in 26 innings. Yeah, I guess the scouts were right that the quickest way to get this done would be to pitch. He didn't play outfield again after that. He went into the instructional league that winter to work on his pitching in late 1978. 1979, he starts again at Dunedin, but after eight games, he was 5-0 and with a 4.24 ERA, and he makes the jump straight away to AAA Syracuse. In seven games at Syracuse, he had a 2.12 ERA, 12 earned runs in 51 innings. So he's 21 years old. He's played 25 games, 145 innings pitched in official minor league and college ball. And he gets a call up to Toronto on June 29th. Steve said he just settled into his apartment in Syracuse when they called him up and he was almost reluctant to go. He didn't know if he was ready for the major leagues. As we saw with Tom Bernanski and so many others, you get a chance because the team is garbage. This Blue Jays team went 53 and 109 in 1979. They didn't expect this fifth round outfielder turned pitcher to be a savior, and he lost his first game. But then in his third start, he went nine innings, gave up one earned run, and got his first win. On the year, even though the team won 53 games, Steve went eight and eight with seven complete games and a shutout. Yeah, in, in 18 games that season, he had an ERA plus of 100. And for his rookie year, that's pretty incredible. His eight wins were 15% of the team's wins overall for the year. Excellent work for his first season in the majors. He started out with those two pitches, fastball and slider. Over the years, he would become a four-pitch and more pitcher with a changeup and a curve added to the repertoire. He wasn't afraid to throw his fastball inside, and he led the league in hit batters five times in his career. His slider was his best pitch. It was just a frisbee. Moving away from righties at the last second, you just see people totally fooled by this pitch, but also coming in on left-handed batters. And there's a, a video here just of that we'll post in the show notes of the legend of Dave Steve's slider. It's really a ridiculous pitch and just kind of loops in and out of the strike zone. Now, we mentioned how dominating Steve was in the 1980s, but the place to look for that is not in the wins and losses. It's more in the ERA, strikeouts, and other categories like that because the Blue Jays teams were really pretty pathetic in Dave's first few seasons. They were in last place in 1980 and 1981, so he only won 12 games and 11 games those seasons. But his ERA plus was above average, and he was recognized in both seasons as an all-star, the only Blue Jay to win that honor. He appeared in both all-star games in 80 and 81 and gave up zero earned runs in 2.2 innings. He was really competitive, and he wasn't happy about the team around him being so poor and often showed frustration at his teammates' errors. There's a, a video clip of him in the dugout with just a middle finger running through his hair, uh, <laughs> which then I think leads to the newscaster uttering a curse word as well. Maybe we'll keep that one in the show notes, but Steve was known for some histrionics and throwing his hands up if a teammate made an error or if a catcher called the wrong pitch. 
he showed his frustration and he would later say that he was an, an outfielder first and he had never had somebody make an error behind him. So he just didn't know how to deal with it. He knew that if he didn't get to a ball, that was his bad. But if somebody else didn't get to a ball, that cost him runs. And so these early seasons were frustrating for him. He got some individual accolades, but the awards voting at this time was really dependent on wins and losses. And Steve didn't really get any Cy Young consideration, even though in 1980 and 81, his seasons were seventh and third in the American League in wins above replacement. He had 14 and then 11 complete games. He was effective and he was a consistent workhorse. And he started to get a little frustrated with pitching in Toronto. He said, I could pitch anywhere. What can I hope for here? Maybe 15 wins a year, but win 15 games a year for 10 years. And where are you? You're not close to anything. I feel as long as I'm here, I'm stagnant. So Steve wanted out and Toronto considered some trades, including one that could have sent him to Philly in exchange for six players, including Ryan Sandberg. But instead, the Jays try to keep him around. He's not eligible for free agency until 1985, but they offer him a multi-year deal that he rejects. So in 1982, having not accepted that contract, Toronto needs to turn it around or they're going to lose him eventually. And luckily they do. A turnaround begins. The Jays win 78 games that season, getting close to 500 for the very first time. They had Lloyd Mosby and Jesse Barfield in the outfield. They had Damaso Garcia and Garth Orge, of course. On the mound, they have Dave Steeb and my dad's high school classmate, Jim Clancy, who are getting established. Yes, both went to St. Rita High School on the south side of Chicago. As good as Dave Steeb was in 1980 and 81, in 82, he takes another leap, and we see some black ink on the back of this card. Yeah, he led the American League in innings pitch, 288 and a third innings, 19 complete games, five shutouts. This is an incredible amount of pitching. He had half of his starts were complete games. He won 17 games, so he had more complete games than than wins. And he had a 138 ERA plus, so very good. He ends up winning the AL Pitcher of the Year Award from the Sporting News, and he finishes fourth in the AL Cy Young voting. That was the highest he finished in his career. The winner that year was Pete Vukovic, who had an 18-6 and record for the AL Champ Brewers, but he had a 1.5 whip. He wasn't nearly as good a pitcher as Dave Steeb was. Steeb also finished behind Dan Quisenberry and Jim Palmer. He was often overshadowed by those winning percentages, but he had an outstanding year. He was valued at 7.6 wins above replacement, which was best among AL pitchers. Another pitcher in Canada who flew under the radar, Steve Rogers, was worth 7.7 war for the Expos, and like Steve, was overlooked in the Cy Young vote. So being on a generally losing team and playing up north didn't do much for Steve as far as awards recognition, but just a fantastic season. The recognition was paid out, though, with the contract from the Blue Jays. After that excellent season, he's awarded a six-year, $5 million deal, which at the time seemed like it might be good. But by the time 1985 rolled around, Steve wasn't even in the top 10 highest paid players in the American League. So this is a good deal for the Jays and not so great a deal for Dave Steeb. 1983, Steeb had another good season for the Blue Jays, who have now bumped up over 500 to 89 wins. 
Through May, he was 8-3 and three with a 1.66 ERA. He started and won the All-Star game. He's becoming a real star. Finished the season with 17 victories and a 3.04 ERA and a 142 ERA+. Plus. In 1983, Steve didn't even get a single Cy Young vote. Again, going back to the voting proclivities of the sports writers at the time, there were four 20-game winners that year. So there were a lot of votes to go around for 20-game winners, and there's no room for a 17-12 and 12 Dave Steeb. Also around this time, he started to tone down some of the intensity, and that probably helped with winning. His teammate, Buck Martinez, who we discussed earlier, pretty tough guy, he confronted Dave Steeb after Steeb reacted angrily when he gave up a home run. Steeb threw his hands up and looked at him and said, how could you call that stupid pitch? They ended up having a probably pleasant conversation. <laughs> Steve apologized and later said, I realize now I could have had my butt kicked for the stuff I used to do. I was fortunate to have players around me who could deal with all that. After that confrontation, Steve went out of his way to recognize great plays and compliment his teammates and became a, a team leader for the Blue Jays. 1984, the Blue Jays again win 89 games, this time finishing second in the American League East, but 15 games behind the Tigers. So Still not ready to make the playoffs. Steve was 9-3 and three with a 2.42 ERA in the first half of the season, earned another All-Star game start. And on the season, he went 16-8, and eight, led the American League in innings pitched with 267, so more black ink on the card. Finished overall with a 2.83 ERA, a 146 ERA plus, leading the league. He also led American League pitchers in war for the third straight season of 7.9 wins above replacement. That was his career high. And he got one Cy Young vote for this. One. Relief pitcher Willie Hernandez for the Tigers. The Tigers have this dominant season, and they give the award to a relief pitcher. Steve finished seventh with his one Beasley vote. There is also, we may touch on this a little bit later on, there's a difference. When we say war, we're normally talking about baseball reference. There is a difference between baseball reference and fan graphs war which has Steve ranked a little bit lower. So in baseball reference, he's first for three straight seasons in wins above replacement. We love our friends at baseball reference, and it's just easier to use that as, as the metric. So don't at me. I'm a pacifist, David. I hate all war except for whatever baseball reference does. So prior to the 1985 season, although Steve had a couple years left on his contract, he ends up signing an extension. And at this time, it was the longest contract in baseball history. He signs an 11-year deal worth at least $12.6 million with deferred payments and incentives. I've seen numbers that said it could go up to $25 million or $53 million. But it was more like a four-year contract with seven club options that could go up depending on Steve's performance. He would get a base salary of $1 million from 85 to 88. That would jump up $100,000 for the following seven years to reach $2.1 million in the final year of the contract. He would also get some Bobby Bonilla-type money, annuity payments of $500,000 every year for 20 years, which expired in 2015. The Blue Jays, to their credit, would actually go back and renegotiate this deal and pay Steve more than his contract stipulated. By the 90s, that $2 million was not a star salary, and in 91 the club ended up paying him $3 million and 3.25 in 1992. The club realized the importance of Dave Steve. Even at the end of his career, they paid him for his service and gave him some credit, even though they 
didn't need to renegotiate that deal. Yeah, about this deal, Steve said, the club is young and building, getting better, and I'll be part of it for all my career. And with the certainty that he would be a Blue Jay for life, Steve had another fantastic season in 1985. Black ink on the back with a 2.48 ERA leading the league. The rest of the team on the field matches his quality, and the Jays win the division. He had a 14-13 and 13 record, but he won the ERA title. It was a 171 ERA+. plus. That's pretty ridiculous. He's still valued near seven wins above replacement. An amazing run between 1982 and 85, where he averaged 7.3 wins above replacement per season. That's near MVP levels, 29.3 total war over that four-year stretch. In 1985, Steve also had the first of many close calls with history. On August 24th, he finished eight no-hit innings against the White Sox. Rudy Law leads off the ninth inning, and Rudy Law had gone over 200 plate appearances without a home run, leads off the ninth inning of a no-hitter with a home run. No-hitter, shutout, gone. The next batter is Brian Little, who also hits a home run. Steve gets pulled, and Harold Baines comes up and hits another home run. The game ends (laughs) 6-3, but this is the first of four no-hitters that Steve lost in the ninth inning. Mm. So close. So close so many times. The Jays win 99 games. The pitching staff, led by Steve, Doyle Alexander, and Jimmy Key. Also, they now have the Terminator, Tom Hankey, outfield of Bees and Barfield, Bell, and Mosby. They go to the ALDS against the Royals, and in Game 1, Steve pitches eight shutout innings. He gives up three hits, leaves with a 6 nothing lead. Hankey gives up one, but the Jays, they're in good shape, winning the first game of the series. They win game two in extra innings, lost game three away at KC. Steve gets another start in game four, again is dominant. Through six innings, he gives up two hits and one run, and the Jays take a three games to one lead. Then it all falls apart. The Jays lost game five in Kansas City. They were shut out 2 nothing. They go back to Toronto and lose game six. For the final game seven, you've got your ace on the mound in a game seven. It's just what you want. But down 2-1 in the sixth inning with two outs and two on, Steve walked the bases loaded and then gave up a bases-clearing triple. He gets pulled from the game with the team down 5-1, and the Jays couldn't come back. Heartbreaking series to lose for Toronto, and the Royals would end up winning the World Series. The heartbreak for Steve would continue in 1986. The Jays drop off, finish in fourth place, and Steve started to have some elbow issues. He had a lingering elbow problem and was throwing fewer sliders. So even though he started 37 games, he had a really bad year. 4.74 ERA. This is the first time his ERA plus was below 100. He was also worth negative war, which is really bad for a guy who was the best pitcher in the league for three out of the four previous seasons. 1987 would end up being a disappointment for the Jays again. Steve was better, but not quite up to his peak a 4.09 ERA with a 13-9 and record. Late in the season, Steve was in and out of the starting rotation. We've talked about this on other Blue Jay player episodes. The Blue Jays dropped many games in September. They were ahead in the AL East, and they ended up losing that division to the Detroit Tigers. And unfortunately, Steve had a pretty bad September as well. He pitched in relief in a couple of games. It was just not a good end of the season for the Blue Jays or for Dave Steve. So at age 30, and with two seasons back-to-back, subpar performance, 
We'd wonder if 1988 he'd bounce back or continue to slide, and luckily he bounced back. He put up a 10 and 5 record with a 2.93 ERA through the break, including a month of May where he's undefeated, 6 and 0, and he makes the All Star game again for the sixth time. The second half of 1988, he had some difficult stretches, but he closed out the season with a four game run that was truly outrageous. On September 13th, he pitched eight innings of one run ball in a win against Detroit. Next start versus Cleveland at home, a four-hit shutout. So there's two more starts left in the season. Next one is in Cleveland. Steve takes a no-hitter into the bottom of the ninth. Two outs, a 2-2 count against Julio Franco, and he loses it. The ball takes a huge, ridiculous bounce over the head of second baseman Manny Lee. There was a divot in the field in Cleveland. The ball just caroms straight into the air. He ends up finishing the game on the next batter, gets a one-hit shutout. Final start of the season against the Orioles. Remarkably, in two straight starts, he makes it to the ninth inning with a no-hitter. Consecutive starts, 2-2 pitch, pinch hitter Jim Traber bloops a ball into right field for a single. Two straight games, two straight blown, no-hitters in the final out, final pitch. Steve said it's a heartbreaker. I'm just wrecked. You get through it all, the ball hits the bat, and you wait. Then it doesn't happen. Ah, very frustrating. But those final four games, 4-0 record, four complete games, three shutouts with one earned run in 34 innings, and a 31 and one-third scoreless inning streak to close out the season. 16-8 and with a 3.08 ERA. 1989 starts out rough for Toronto. They... Fire Jimmy Williams after starting 12 and 24. Steve wasn't doing well either, had a 3 and 3 record with a 5.46 ERA through the end of May. But they turned around the season with new manager Cito Gaston, and they also moved into the Sky Dome halfway through the season. I think this is our second appearance of Alan Thick on the podcast. We may have mm-hmm. a. <laughs> sweaty and hot. So, where Alan Thick was sweaty and hot at the aerobics championship in this sky dome opening video he's wet and awkward (laughs) (laughs) he and andrea martin sing a song at this opening ceremony there's a lot of songs about a retractable roof there's dancers from all over the world there is canadian celebrities of all shapes and sizes it it's outrageous. This is like two hours of madness, this video. And I watched the movie Cats, and this is more madness than the movie Cats. So in, in the middle of this this thing, they're singing all these songs about having the roof. You know, you got a dome, you can play indoors. And then this retractable roof, they open the roof, and it's raining. So by the end of this video, you have all these people like doing Russian dances, soaking wet. Like in the rain, it's... It is absurd. It must have helped because the Blue Jays won 89 games that season, finished first in the American League East. Alan Thicke's hair might have been damaged in the process by that rain, but the but the Jays made the playoffs so all as well. Steve went 14-5 and five from June through the end of that season with a 2.40 ERA, so throwing in the dome helped him a lot. And here we go again, August 4th of 1989. He's perfect through 26 batters against the Yankees with 11 strikeouts. The 27th out is at the plate. It's Roberto Kelly 
the two batters previous were Hal Morris and Ken Phelps. Steve struck both of them out. The Yankees thought, all right, it's over. Let's pack it up. Roberto Kelly on a 2-0 count doubles down the left field line. Steve Sachs drives him in on the next play. Perfect game. No hitter. Shutout. All gone. Again, two outs in the ninth. Just ridiculously bad luck. The Jays do make the playoffs, though, and Steve got a chance to pitch in the playoffs again, but he gave up eight earned runs in 11 innings against the A's and took losses in games one and five. 1990, he starts the season again strong, 11-3 and three at the All-Star break, making his seventh All-Star game and his final All-Star appearance. On September 2nd of 1990, again versus Cleveland, he has a no-hitter going into the ninth inning. And with two outs, Jerry Brown is at the plate. So finally, after years and years, after all of those close calls, Dave Steve finally gets his first no-hitter. That was the first and to this date the only Blue Jays no-hitter in their team's history. Although he was disappointed with those many near misses, when he finally got the no-hitter, it was a relief and he was really proud of it. But he did say, with some good perspective here, a lot of great pitchers have never thrown a no-hitter. That tells you what kind of luck it takes to throw one. It didn't make me any greater a pitcher by doing that. Obviously, it says a lot when you contain the game to that degree, but it takes a lot of luck. And that was something that was clear from those those near misses. Having a two-hit shutout is just a, a few inches away from, from being a, a no-hitter. And so there is a sense of relief that that Steve was finally able to get this in 1990. He won 18 games for the season, but didn't get a win in his last five starts, which denied him a 20-win season. But Steve closed out a, a really solid season. He went 18-6, and 2.93 ERA. That's a 140 ERA+. plus. His wins above replacement was back to that early 80s level at 5.9. He finished fifth in Cy Young voting. Again, not quite getting the recognition that maybe he deserved, but a really good season. That was the last full season of, of Dave Steeb's career. In 1991, he made nine starts with shoulder tendonitis and a herniated disc that really limited his play. Meanwhile, the Blue Jays were, were building for the future. They won 91 games, lost to the Twins in the ALCS that year. 1992, a huge season for Toronto. They still have the AL East winning squad intact of Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter. They bring Jack Morris and Dave Winfield in as free agents. Steve only has 14 starts and an ERA over five. And he's injured. He doesn't pitch much after August 8th. But the Jays win 96 games. Steve watches the playoffs and the World Series from the bench. After that World Series victory, Steve said, I celebrated like I won the last game, but I don't look at it like somebody that played in and won it. So a little bit of a bittersweet moment for Dave Steve winning the World Series, but not really playing a part in that World Series team. After the season, the Jays didn't renew his contract. He was signed and released by the White Sox, tried with the Royals, but retired shortly after. How about in retirement? 
normally we go to our closing the book and our final line, but with Dave Steeb, we have a little bit of a, a stop start. He spent some time with his family. He missed baseball a little bit, so he went into coaching. And then in 1998, he's a guest instructor for the Blue Jays in spring training, throwing BP, helping out with some young pitchers. And he said he felt good throwing the ball. He wasn't really thinking about a comeback, but then the coaches said, why don't you try it out? Get on the mound. He pitched and he felt no soreness. He didn't need the money. The Blue Jays still owed him like $10 million in deferred compensation. So he goes and and pitches a little bit at A-ball and then gets promoted to AAA Syracuse. He had a 5-4 and record at AAA with a 2.73 ERA in nine starts. So at 40, he gets promoted back to Toronto. He ends up pitching in 19 games. He has three starts. He goes one and two with a 4.83 ERA. Not too bad for a guy who sat out for four years. After the season, Toronto asks him if he wants to stick around and be a full-time reliever. Steve decides to retire, and this time for good. So finally closing the book on Dave Steve. 16 seasons in the major leagues. Record of 176 and 137. ERA of 3.44, which was an ERA plus of 122. 1,669 strikeouts with 103 complete games. Oh my gosh. 30 shutouts. He is still the Blue Jays' all-time leader in wins. Starters ERA, complete games, shutouts, strikeouts, and wins above replacement. A seven-time All-Star. He won the ERA title in 1985 and finished in the top 10 of Cy Young voting four times. How about in actual retirement? Steve spent some time as an instructor with the Jays organization, but gradually he kind of phased out of that and spent more time in Nevada, where he lives, works in a family construction business, and spends time with his wife and kids. Now, how about the Hall of Fame? I guess it's kind of fitting with the way that Steve was treated by sports writers during his career that in his first year on the ballot, he got seven votes. That is 1.4% below the 5% threshold to stay on the ballot for a second year. Voters nowadays keep guys on the ballot a little bit longer, but at this time in 2004, with advanced stats not really playing a part in this conversation, Steve got really no recognition. Steve said right off the bat, I don't belong in the Hall of Fame. I didn't win enough games and so forth, he told the Sporting News in 2017. He said, I surely did not deserve to be just wiped off the map after the first year on the ballot. It's like, please amuse me and string me out for two or three years. During his career, Steve told reporters, I could win a lot more games and make a lot more money elsewhere. And that's true. He could have gotten increased both salary, notoriety, wins if he played on a winning team, particularly in those early years when he was at his best. But advanced metrics are a lot kinder to Dave Steeb. He has a 114 Hall of Stats rating from our friend Adam Dorowski, and anything over 100 puts you at at Hall-worthy. On baseball reference, his 56.5 war is 78th among pitchers. He's ahead of a few Hall of Famers, Whitey Ford, Sandy Koufax, Early Wynn, Jim Cott, Jack Morris. His peak seven years are comparable to Gaylord Perry, Fergie Jenkins, Carl Hubble, and Bob Feller. But that four-year peak, he was fantastic. 29.3 wins above replacement from 1982 to 1985. Sometimes these 80s baseball players are a bit curmudgeonly when we talk about advanced stats. 
mm-hmm. including Burt Blylevin, who, even though it helped his cause for the Hall of Fame, was kind of an angry old man about wins above replacement. But Dave Steve is the opposite, and partially it's self-serving. He says, I love analytics because it would have made me look better. When I played, it was all about <laughs> wins and ERA. That's it. That's all anybody cared about. His teammate, Pat Henkin, told him, if they'd used war back then, you'd have won the Cy Young four years in a row, 82, 83, 84, 85. I'm like, wow, Pat, that's great to hear, but that doesn't do much for me right now. In fact, it makes me feel bad because I didn't even get one. But Steve was the best pitcher of the 1980s by baseball reference war by a lot. His 48.1 war is 10 higher than Burt Blylevin, who was second. Even by traditional metrics, Steve was second in the decade in wins, 140 wins after Jack Morris's 162. Impressive considering Morris played for the Tigers, who were great in the early and mid 80s, versus Steve playing for some hapless Blue Jays teams. Morris's inclusion in the Hall of Fame is a, a good argument for Steve, but Morris had some iconic moments and more wins, but he played for a lot better teams. Of Morris, Dave Steve said, he was an awesome pitcher. I totally respect him and his skills and what he did, but if you look at everything, I think I was the best. Steve was really good very early, then dominant for that four-year stretch, and then got back to that form late in his career. But does an 11-year peak where you're the top in the top 10 in wins, strikeouts, ERA, whip, batting average allowed, does that make you a Hall of Famer? If he had won one or a couple Cy Youngs that he maybe should have won, or if his arm hadn't been completely shot by 1991 and he had been able to participate in those World Series teams, Dave Steve would have been remembered differently. He's next eligible for the Hall of Fame in 2023 in the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee a voting that happens, do we think he has a shot? It's going to be difficult for Steve. There are some names on this, including past episodes, Lou Whitaker, where it would be great to see Lou Whitaker get in. And Lou Whitaker, as far as wins above replacement goes, has an even better case. Dave Parker, Dwight Evans, Don Mattingly. And then you have the guys like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa. Yeah, the contemporary baseball era ballot has... Just of pitchers who have a Hall of Stats rating higher than 100, there's several, like Brett Saberhagen, David Cohn, Kevin Brown, Kurt Schilling, and Roger Clemens. Yeah, it's, it'll, be, it'll be really difficult. And Steve, I think, has been largely forgotten, except by Blue Jays fans like Diane and this band from Canada called Sewing with Nancy, who has a song about Dave Steve. And the Dorktown guys. And well, I guess a lot of people now that we're thinking about it who really like to dig into the stats and remember how great Dave Steve was. This is a really remarkable career going from an outfielder starting to pitch for the Salukis, going to a big league starter in under two years. And he did see this Jays team from a hapless expansion team losing 109 games in his rookie season all the way to World Series champs. He just wasn't able to contribute as much as he would have liked to that World Series team. He said, the whole thing was bittersweet. As you can well understand, it was very bitter. The fact that I played all those years and we finally had a great team that was going to the World Series and I had to watch, it was hard. But I'll never give my ring back. I'll take that, thank you. 
as he should. And we will watch intently when the various Hall of Fame committees get back to work next year and see if Dave makes any progress. But in the meantime, thank you, David, for the story. And thank you, Diane, for the request. We greatly appreciate it. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever had a dance party with Alan Thicke, ruined by a thunderstorm we'd love to hear all about it on twitter we're at tops 1988 thanks a lot and we'll see you next week